Okay, let's then turn in our Bibles to the... We begin from the 14th verse in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read it. You can follow along. I'm going to read from verse uh, 14 down to verse 11. Actually, no, I'll read the whole, all the way down to verse 14 in chapter 5. Okay? Flawed that you have a pint. That's good. Yeah, so dull. I understand. That's excellent then. Then I don't feel bad anymore. Excellent. Okay. Hebrews 4 and 11. No, sorry, that's a 14. We'll be in 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. Because of this, he is required for all the people, uh, required as for all the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who was called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is but a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Amen. So we've just entered into this, this 
portion of the book of Hebrews. Now we understand that this book was not really a book. It's more of a sermon. Someone has recorded a sermon that was preached. And it has been distributed among the the peoples. We remember to whom it was written. We must always remember the context. It was written to Jews. It's a Jew speaking to Jews about their common faith. Not necessarily all to all believing Jews. We understand that there are three categories of people being addressed in this letter. There are the believers. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Have accepted the master as their Lord. As his, their Lord and Savior. Then he's also talking to those who believe in Jesus. But yet have not made a decision in their hearts. Have not come to a saving faith. We might call them nominal believers. Christians in name. But yet not in their heart. They're open to it, yet because of other factors, they have not yet committed themselves fully and completely. And then the third group to people who just don't believe at all. People who are closed in their hearts. They're still Jews. But in their hearts, they refuse to believe in Jesus. They don't recognize him as their savior. And they are Moving away. Now, at the time when this sermon was preached or this letter was recorded, the Jews were going through unbelievable persecution. There was tremendous pressure being laid upon them. Many of them had started to to waver and make compromises and try and combine the old traditions of Israel, of the Jewish faith, the the sacrifices, the circumcisions, the traditional washings, all the paraphernalia of the old religion. They try to bring it in. We remember, don't we, we who know the New Testament, that Paul had tremendous problems, didn't he, with the Pharisees, with the... um, that sect that followed after him. Everywhere Paul would went, went, they would follow behind him. And they would mess things up. And they would say, yes, yes, it's Jesus. Faith in Jesus. But also, you have to obey the tenets of our faith. You have to be circumcised. You have to live like a Jew now. Jesus plus the Jewish religion. Now Paul, of course, exposed that as a lie. And you have the whole controversy in in Acts chapter 15. So this letter, this sermon is written around that time. And he's trying this, the, 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 the writer or the speaker of this book is trying to secure in the minds and in the hearts of those who read it or hear it that Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient. It's not Jesus plus anything else. And one of the great difficulties that the Jews had way back then, and I suppose they still do today, it was concerning the legitimacy of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was of a different tribe. 
And in the mind of the Jew, that disqualified him. He can't, he can't represent me before God because he's not from the legitimate tribe, Levitical tribehood, the tribe of the seed of Aaron. It's not an, of the family of Aaron. Not among those who are called to serve in the temple. How then is he to be able to represent me before God? And the writer, the speaker here in this book, he's addressing that. But of course, he can't jump straight into it. He can't just begin by saying, well, Jesus is greater than, than Moses, greater than, than Joshua. He has to warm that up. And of course, we see that he begins with the angels, the, the, the heavenly powers. And he talks about how Jesus was greater than them because they're servants, yet Jesus is a son. They're spiritual beings. Jesus was the son in the flesh. In reality. He then goes on to talk about Moses. And how Moses was a great servant in the house. But yet he was only a servant. The son has come. And he deserves greater honor. He goes on. And now we get into the, the heart of the matter. About the priesthood now for you and i these are very dry subjects because you know for the majority of us we are from free church and or from an atheistic environment where religion doesn't really play a fundamental part of our existence we are brought up with the understanding that we can address god at any time we can come to him and speak to him at any time there's nothing dividing us but if we came, if we grew up, if we came from or grew up within a, say, Roman Catholic country, we would have a very different understanding. You see, Roman Catholics still maintain that idea of a priest, one who represents you before God. That you yourself cannot talk to God. You must go to the priest who will communicate and make prayers. We see some emblems some some small remnants of it in the lutheran church Have you ever been to a lutheran church and gone and lit a candle and set the candle up it's a great tradition isn't it it's lovely but what you're really saying there is you need someone to represent you before jesus there, there, there's a, a mediator the priest will light a candle for you and light it down he is praying prayers on your behalf because you're not able. Still sneaking in there. A dependency on someone else other than Jesus. The writer here wants you to know, wants me to know, wants the church to know that only Jesus Christ is the, the legitimate mediator. The one who represents you before God. I cannot represent you before God. I intercede for you. I pray for you. I cry out to God for you. But when it comes to the legal dealings of your sin, of your representation before God, I have no ability to represent you for I am as guilty as you are and disqualified from representing myself. And therefore, I need someone else so the, the issue that the speaker writer is dealing with is who represents you 
And how do you know that it is the legitimate representation? We are told here in chapter 5, verse 1, the general qualifications for a, a priest in the Old Testament system. We're told this is what it takes to become a priest or to be acknowledged by God. This is the, the legitimate qualifications. And the very first one is that every high priest is taken from among men. You know, in the early church, they didn't have a difficulty believing that Jesus was God. Today in our day, in our atheistic time, where we don't believe in the supernatural, we don't believe in God, we, we, we get stuck in our throat that Jesus is God. That's a very difficult thing for us. God, the idea of a God is ridiculous. Way back in the beginning, well, the Jews, of course, had a problem with Jesus being God. But ultimately, it was that he was a man. That he was actually like us. That was very difficult for them to accept. It wasn't that he was a, a supernatural being because he had demonstrated that, of course, with the miracles, the walking on the water, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the resurrection. And it was commonly, commonly accepted that Jesus was supernatural. He wasn't like us. But then they had the difficulty of, well, then he's something else. But the Bible here is telling us very clearly that he was taken, chosen from among us. That he is exactly like us in our physical being. I don't know about yourselves, but sometimes I have a difficulty in that relating that God can relate to me. We who study the attributes of God, the character of God, who God is, how God has revealed himself in the Bible, sometimes it can be very difficult. God is all-knowing. I am certainly not all-knowing. I can't even open apps on my phone. I have to ask kids sometimes, can you show me how to do this? God is completely righteous. I am not completely righteous. God is completely good. I am not completely good. God never hungers, never tires. I get really hungry and grumpy. And I get really tired and grumpy. And so at times it can be very difficult to, to believe that God understands what I'm going through. Or what I'm in how it feels to be me. But the Bible tells us that God chose one to represent us who is just like us. That our representative had to be someone who was just like us. And indeed it tells us there, doesn't it? For we have... We, um, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was with all points tempted as we were. Jesus understands and knows. And the writer is telling us, telling you and me, that Jesus knows what it is to live a life like ours. 
He understands what it is to, to feel the things that we feel, to experience the things that we feel. And that legitimizes him. That, that, that gives him his position. And I think that's great news. I mean, to have a God who is so untouchable, so fathomless, making words up, so infinite in his character, our finite minds cannot really get a hold of him. But Jesus, the man Jesus, we can see him. Or we could if he was here with us. We could touch him. We could joke with them. He understands what it is to be like us. So it is required that he is a man with a man's nature and a man's body. He's not an angel. He's not some supernatural being. He's one of us. The second point of these qualifications out of five that there are. That he is appointed for men. From men and for men. He's taken from us. He's one of us. And his job is to represent us. And that's great news. It's great news because you and I don't even know how to represent ourselves. We don't even know what we've done wrong. If you're a husband, that's a a common feeling. You know, sometimes something happens and you don't even know what you've done. I don't know what I've done. I'm in trouble. I don't know. What have I done? I don't know. Is it my anniversary? No, I know that one. That's the only one I know. And you don't even know. You have an argument, you don't even know. We need someone who knows what they're doing. And in our dealings with God, we need someone who knows what they're doing. A professional. An expert. One who can do everything inside and out and back. You know the, the kind of guy that you take your, 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 your laptop's broken and you don't know what to do. And you take it to someone and you hand it to them and say, my laptop's broken, I don't know what to do. And he says, have you turned it on and off? I hate that question. Yes, I have many times. And then they open it up and they go, they go, aha, this is what you've done. You've pushed this button, that button, and they do this, and your laptop is now fixed. And you feel like a fool, of course. Without that expertise, you're stumped, you're, you're, you're stuck, you cannot unlock your own thing. Why? Because you needed someone who has trained and knows what they're doing. You and I need someone to represent us before God. Someone who knows what they're doing. Jesus Christ is that person. Why? Because he set the system up. He's the one who set all these things in place. And he came and was one of us and then represented us. When you and I didn't even know that we had done anything wrong. Of course, we're not Jews and we were not put made party to all of those laws and uh, covenants that God had made with the Jewish people. We were, by nature, Gentiles. Excluded from people in darkness who never knew the truth. And yet, by his great mercy and his tremendous grace, he made a way for us. We who have no legitimate claim to any promise. We who have no right to claim forgiveness. 
or grace. We who were his enemies, we who were continually against him, he is called to represent us. So first one, that he is one of us. He knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows exactly what it's like to be in a part of a family, to have a mom and a dad. He knows what it's like to have gone to school and have to live a life and eat and drink and family drama and tragedy. He understands completely what it's like to be human, to struggle or to feel the influences of sin. Not that Jesus sinned. But he was, the Bible says he was tempted or tried, put in situations time and time again where there was the option to sin, yet he never sinned. That perfect nature preserved him, and he chose not to. Second again, that he is called or appointed to represent us, to be the one who takes care of us when we can't take care of ourselves, knows what needs to be done when we don't know anything. It says here in the third that he might offer up both gifts and sacrifices. That Jesus Christ offers up both gifts and sacrifices. Again, we talk about the Roman Catholic Church. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, every Sunday or Saturday, whenever they have their good chance, that they perform a re-sacrificing of Jesus. They re-crucify him in their liturgy, their little instruction book of how to do a good chance. They call it the, the bloodless re-crucifying of Jesus. They, they sacrifice him anew. They kill him again. Tremendously blasphemous. They say they do it so that the sins of the people from that week can be cleansed. And they say they believe that the priest has the power to pull Jesus down out of heaven from his throne in heaven and imprison him in, in the crucifix. You ever seen that little statue? We have one in the other room. Not we, but this building has one in the other room. Of Jesus on the cross. When we think sometimes, well, well, that's a wonderful piece of art. But in the mind of the Roman Catholics, it's a prison for Jesus. They pull him from the throne and the priest imprisons him in the, in the, uh, the, the crucifix. And they re-sacrifice him again. They kill him again for the sins of the people. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus one time and for all was sacrificed. There is no need for a priest to re-sacrifice Jesus. When he died upon the cross, he uttered those words, It is finished. We do not need the help of a man or a pope or priest, a bishop, whoever, to come along and help us in our work, or Christ's work, should I say. The Bible teaches us that Jesus offered up the gifts and sacrifices. The word gifts isn't like with money or 
jewels or diamonds. It, it, it pertains to the part of the law that was uh, a wave offering or a grain offering, a, a pleasing aroma before the, 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 the nostrils of the Lord. It, it, it's a, a, a sacrifice of praise, an offering of yourself. And for us as Christians, we understand that this is, Jesus lived a perfect life. That his life was as a, a sacrifice, a gift to Jesus. Perfect and wholesome, complete. Now you and I, beloved, we could never offer a gift before God. Could you imagine entering into the throne room of heaven with Christ and all his perfection there and you and I going up with our best deeds, those things that we're utterly proud of. I make models, you know, like little things. Yesterday I made a tank. It was so pretty. Little little plastic things that I paint. And I, you know, imagine taking something you've spent hours on, your lifetime building. It's, you, you're so proud of it. And you take it to the Lord. You let us go, look, Lord, look what I did for you. And there next to it is the perfection of Christ. And you look back at what you've done and you look at him and you go, oh, dear. And then you remember that verse in the Bible that says all of our best deeds, all of our righteous deeds, all of the things that we've ever been proud of, the Bible says they're like filthy rags, really like dirty diapers, like a baby blower. Shitika blower. Isn't that what the word is? Even worse than that, really. It gets into something horrible. So... Jesus Christ had to come with a life that's perfect. Our lives are terribly imperfect in word, thought, and deed. The things that go on here, the things that come out of there, and then the things that we do. Clothed in our selfishness, we live chiefly for ourselves, but Jesus Christ lived as a priest every day of his life and gave himself for you and for me. His life was a life of continual giving, never taking. He gave himself on behalf of others. And still today, the Bible tells us that he is giving himself, that he continually makes intercession. He prays for you and for me. He is actively involved in our lives. Again, the Bible demonstrates that Jesus Christ in his life gave himself a gift to God and his perfection. Why? Because you and I couldn't. You and I could not offer up a gift of praise. Now if you're like me, and uh, I hope that you are, we're concerned about the glory of God and living to please him. And trying our best. Yet even when we do our best, something happens. And we falter and we fail. And we're back to square one. Have you ever played the game Snakes and Ladders? You know that little Snakes and Ladders game? I don't play board games because I'm far too competitive even in Snakes and Ladders. And you know that just before you get to 100, there's 100 squares. And just before you get to 100, at 99, there's a ladder that takes you all the way back to the beginning. So if you land on 99, you have to go right back to the beginning again. Oftentimes, 
when we think we're doing so well in order to please God and we're doing everything right, something happens and we go straight back and we're the realization and the understanding we haven't really moved away from position one yet. But the good news is that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And when God looks at you and at me, he doesn't see all of our imperfections. He doesn't see that we are still living in one or zero or minus one if you're something like us. But he looks upon us and he sees that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That Christ's good works and Christ's good deeds are given on our behalf. That's good news. That's tremendous news. Because we understand that though we do try and live to the glory of God, even when we falter and fail, he is still there to pick up for us. He is still there to carry us and watch over us. That we have one who is faithful, true fast. I was going to say that word, true fast. Even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. And then the other part of his service was he offered up sacrifices and that for you and I is wonderful. The Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. A life for a life. The Bible says that he who sins shall die. You break the law of God there are consequences. And yet we even know further than that that we have inherited the consequences of the the actions of our forefather, Adam. That we are a dead race. That not only do we sin, but we live in sin. We were born in sin. We know no, nothing other. We, we, don't, we wouldn't recognize righteousness if we met it in the street. We have no concept of what it means to be good before God. Righteous, just. These are foreign concepts to us. They might as well be Martian or some other alien life form. For we do not understand. Again, with our finite brains trying to comprehend the infinite. And all of our efforts are moot. Mean nothing. They're meaningless. All of our good deeds are meaningless. What could you offer God? What could you lay at his feet and, and, and try and purchase your salvation? Purchase your eternal life? What do you own? What have you done that would be enough to purchase for you eternal life? A life without end and imperfection. I have nothing. <laughs> My hands are empty. Not only the empty, but they're stained in blood. I come with a baggage train of sin and errors and failure. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ offered up a sacrifice. The sacrifice that he offered was him his own life. A good life for a bad life. That he submitted himself on behalf of those who would believe in him. He took your place. I will go and receive 
punishment on behalf of this one. I don't know about you, but I really appreciate that I have a high priest, a representative, a lawyer, one who works on my behalf, who doesn't just take it seriously, but is personally invested. He didn't just kind of rub it out and say, you know what? Nah, it doesn't matter anymore. He didn't just kind of close his eyes and say, you know, we'll not look at that. Wink, wink. You know, it's okay. We're friends. We know what we're doing. He didn't. He took it seriously and he said, your, your, your crime, your sin is unforgivable. But you know what? I will take your place. We think of forgiveness as just letting things go. Don't we? I forgive you and we let it go. But that's not what God did. It's not what Christ did. When you were forgiven, it was not, he didn't just let it go. The sentence was fulfilled. Punishment was given out. Your sin was punished upon Jesus Christ. It wasn't that he just forgave you and then, you know, we just get on with it. He took upon himself that eternal punishment. And again, I don't know about you, but that brings relief to my heart. That I have one who is active on my behalf. Not a concept, not a theology, a person. The reality, Jesus, he is active on your behalf. You cannot represent yourself before God. I think I told you before the story about when I was in Ireland. I can't remember whose wedding it was. Joel's perhaps. Yes, my 2018. And I met with a man that I knew when I was in high school. He, he, he direct messaged me from Facebook and said, Kyle, I hear you're in Ireland. I hadn't seen him in years, almost 20 something years. And he said, Let's get to ha- together and have breakfast. I was like, fantastic, let's go. Uh, again, a guy I knew in high school when I was 16, 17. Let's go have breakfast. Fantastic. And he says, so what are you doing with yourself? Are you still doing this religious thing that you, you, know, you were into when you were in high school? I says, I am. I'm a pastor now. And he was like, really? What? And he said, well, he said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And I was like, really? We sat and we had our our, our Irish breakfast, bacon and sausage, different kinds of breads, beans, mushrooms. Just about a pile. You can see I like my food. Pile of food. Big, big mugs of tea. And we sat and we talked. And then it turned out, and he said, well, I, just, I find it really hard to believe that the, in a concept of God. And as we talked, it turned out then that he was a, a, a Gnostic. He said, well, it's not that I don't believe in God. I just... I, I kind of believe in God. I just don't know anything. How could, how could we understand God? If God was to, if, if a creator of the universe was to come down, we're, we're less than ants. We're like less than amoebas. We're less than atoms to that God. How could he communicate to us? I said, I don't know. How would you think? He said, well, he'd have to come down somehow and be like us. I mean, how could we understand? He'd have to be like us. And I said, yeah, yeah. 
And, and he said, but it wouldn't be enough. And then again, this is an unbeliever. He said, it wouldn't be enough that he was just outwardly like us because he'd be still different on the inside. He'd have to be like us. We couldn't, how would he be able to, to uh, communicate or, or even feel, know what we're thinking? And I said, yeah, that's great. And we talked on and, and he was like, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? I was like, yeah. God came, was born as a baby, lived a life, gave his life for you and I, and his name was Jesus. And he sat there and he was like, and I really didn't do anything. I just kind of nudged this way and nudged that way. I didn't try and convince him. But in his own logic, as he was working it through, he came to the conclusion that Jesus must be God and that he must be here to communicate God's words to us. See, we needed someone to come and to work for us and that person to do very specific things, to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death. These are things that Jesus did. And it says here in verse 2 that he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he also is subject to weakness. Did you know that the Bible does not offer Forgiveness to those who are stubborn in their unrepentance. I think it's Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, first, tw- first 30, sorry, it's verse 30. Verse 28, it talks about the compassion that, that the high priest will offer up sacrifices on behalf of those who don't know any better. You've sinned and you haven't even known that you're sinning. Because you don't know the, the, the laws of God. You, you do something and you just, oh. But it says in verse 30 that there is no forgiveness for those who are rebellious, stubborn in their sin. And here we see Jesus in his work in that, those qualifications, those things that make him qualified. That he's able to have compassion on you and on me who didn't even know. We didn't know. We who are Gentiles by birth. We're not brought up in the tenets, the, the teachings of Israel, the Jewish religion. And he is able to have compassion. That word compassion is beautiful. It's a beautiful word. It means to not just to show mercy but like a hug. It, it, it means to come alongside and there is warmth and feeling and friendliness and an involvement. He shows compassion to those who are ignorant. They're not willful in their, in their sin. I believe in Jesus, but then I keep on actively sinning. I believe in Jesus, but then I go on and live a life that denies him. A life that, that demonstrates that I'm a Sunday believer, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm just like the people of the world. And then I come back to Sunday and I put my, my Christian face on, put my Sunday clothes on, I tie my tie. But 
really I'm still stubbornly in my sin. I'm, I'm believing in Jesus, but I'm still stubbornly in my sin. There is no forgiveness. There is no compassion for those who are stubborn and reject him and stand against him. There is no forgiveness for them. They've put themselves outside the love of God. They are running away from him as fast as they can. They are still like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? After they fell, after they'd eaten of the fruit of the tree, God came in the evening, in the cool of the evening, and called out to Adam. What was their response? They hid. They hid themselves. The idea is they ran away. They cowered because their friend God was coming into the garden and yet they knew that they were fallen. They had sinned against them and they recognized that there was a difference between them and God. Human beings still in their natures flee from God. They're fleeing from him. Beloved, we have a, a saviour, a high priest who has offered up sacrifices once and for all. We don't need another man. We don't need a pope. We don't need a bishop or an archbishop. We don't need a priest on a Sunday to pull Jesus off the, cross, off the, the throne of heaven and imprison him in, in a crucifix. You don't need me to do special magic upon you. Jesus Christ has opened up a way that all who turn to him in faith, in trust, shall receive eternal life, newness of life. Not the life that you're in, but a new life. That doesn't mean that you just push reset. It means that there's a difference inside you now. Do you know when you turn a light switch on in a dark room and all of a sudden it goes from darkness to light. It's the same room, it's just now it's filled with light. Seeing happens in our hearts, in us as human beings, in our spirits, the center core of who we are, that when we trust in God, a light switch goes on and there immediately is illumination and difference. It's not the same anymore. It's different. You can see it is full of light. And then verse 4. And no man takes this honour to himself, but he who is called just as Aaron, or called by God just as Aaron was. No one can take this calling to themselves. It wasn't... And, uh, you know, an ambition. In Christianity, oftentimes we see very ambitious young men wanting to be pastors. You know, they, they, they have... Uh, I remember when I was growing up in the Pentecostal movement. And uh, oftentimes there was a very cutthroat among the pastors who had the biggest church, who had the best ministry. And there was this ambition and people worked really hard to supposedly do well. To be called by God. But in the true and real nature of the work of Christ. 
A man must be called by God. It must be a God-given service. We cannot think to ourselves, you know, Jesus could not have thought to himself, you know what, today I'm going to be Messiah. It's my ambition. I'm going to work hard. It was something that was, he was called to by God. We talked about the, the, uh, the conversation in, in prehistory, in eternity past, where God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son got together and decided to save mankind, even before mankind had come into being. Jesus Christ was chosen, but also volunteered and came and lived for us. Jesus fulfills all of these qualifications and he is our advocate, the one who represents us before God. You do not need a man, you do not need me, you do not need your husband or your wife or the Pope or a priest or a bishop. You have Jesus And the writer here is telling us and showing us that the old system of a professional representing you has passed away. That Jesus fulfills all of these qualifications and does so perfectly in those areas of your life where you could not succeed. Jesus has perfected them. And the good news for you and I is that he is still those things. He still represents us. He, we, we have received his righteousness and his forgiveness. And he has made a way in which you and I can boldly come before God. I remember when I came to faith many, many years ago. The realization that I was barred from the presence of God, that I could not enter into God's presence. Now, as a young man, I would talk to God all the time, you know, before I was a Christian. I would have, because Irish men do, it's so funny, so silly. You know, I would walk home drunken from the pub or whatever, and I would talk to God in my head, or talk out loud. People used to think I was mad. And then one day, on a Wednesday afternoon, I realized the Bible, somebody quoted this verse. For, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father but by me. And I realized that me trying to talk to God was useless. Because God could not hear me. I was outside the family of God. And for all of my talking to him and trying to negotiate with him was useless because the way that God had made was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had to come in him. He was like the bouncer outside the the bar of heaven. That's how I thought. And he was saying to me, you can't come in. You're 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 not one of mine. You don't have that stamp on your hand. Forgiven. You can't come in. And I remember bowing the knee saying, Lord, I recognize that you're the only way. Please, Jesus, help me. Save me. I'm not worthy and I'm not willing. Help me. And something happened in my heart. Transformed me and changed me. Made me love him for forever. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the only way. Trust him.
and in him today. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have done all things on our behalf. We are thoroughly grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ. That he fulfills all the qualifications. Lord, we thank you that he is just like us. That he's called from among us. That he represents us fully. Knows what it's like to be us. Knows what it's like to be part of a family. Knows what it's like, Lord, to feel the stresses and strains of every day, Lord. We are so very grateful that he represents us and he works on our behalf, that he is tireless and fearless, that he cannot be intimidated, nor nor can he be bribed. We are so grateful, Lord, that you work on our behalf. Lord, we are so grateful that you offer up prayers and sacrifices, uh, gifts and sacrifices on our behalf, Lord, that they are they have made us complete and full and won for us a, an access, a reconciliation into your presence, into the presence of the Father. We ask, O oh God, that you would make it clear to those who do not know you. Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father except by you. That, Lord, that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that he, who, those who might believe might have eternal life. Lord, we pray Make these things known. We ask it for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.